to this episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WBEW 107.7 LP FM, your local community radio station here in Brattleboro. I also want to welcome all our YouTube viewers to this video as well. My name is Olga Peters. I'm the host of the Montpelier Happy Hour, and I want to welcome regular contributor, Representative Emily Kornheiser. Hey, Emily. Good morning, Olga. And we are very happy to have on the show today, Kelly Tully, who is the first, um, this is your first show, basically, since you yeah. were nominated to fill Matt Treber's seat for the Wyndham Three House seat. Um, we are so glad to have you today, Kelly. Thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Um, let's start with just um, a quick get to know you for the community who hasn't met you yet. Um, okay. And Emily, you ask your question so beautifully, um, rather than the journalist question of, of give us your bio. <laughs> um, before I ask my question, I'm gonna say, Olga, I think the habit that we have of calling it Matt Schreiber's seat um, or whomever else's seat is a disservice to democracy because it's the community seat and not whoever's sitting in it. And that's, that's something we're very careful about on the floor. It's part of the ritual of the floor mm -hmm. is that we say the representative from Rockingham or the representative from Brattleboro. And it's really an acknowledgement that we're just there as sort of the voice of our community. That's, thank you, Emily. That's a good reminder. What I'm thinking about as a journalist right now is how do I give listeners quick context? Mm. Since most listeners are like Wyndham 3, what? I know, where is or, that? Or who's my house rep? Or Rockingham? Wait, no, I live in Bellows Falls. So thank you. I will think about that. But I think both are important. It's just also like, yeah. you know, Kelly is nothing like Matt, I assume. And so that's also a really interesting. Which is exciting. Sort of like, it, it is. <laughs> um, change is fun. So anyway, Kelly, hi. Hi. I'm so curious what brought you to this particular moment in your life? Like what's happened that informed what's happening now? And like, how and why are you here? Well, it's it's kind of a a I don't know a long time coming. I certainly my family has been in Vermont since the late 1600s, so we're kind of entrenched in our community, um, and we've um, done lots of different things. And so, born and raised in this area, always really important um, to take care of each other to, and and take care of each other in your own communities, which. Again, Vermont is a small community when you think about it, but more local. So that's part of it. I certainly have done a lot of different things over the years. Um, one of the my my favorite and, and best things is is being a nurse, um, which is actually who I am, not just what I do. So I'm I'm pretty thrilled that my mom was a nurse. So it's kind of a family tradition. So I'm I'm pretty pleased because she's a pretty amazing, amazing strong woman. Um, and about, uh, I want to say, uh, four and a half years ago, my husband passed away and he was a super, um, charismatic, um, guy who was in politics in his own right, but it was never anything official, but he kind of, uh, was an inspiration to get to know everybody and to reach out and we all, you know, he would always have a good sense. He actually was a, a friend of Mike Obahoski's. Um, so he, who is a long time representative from our area as well. So it's kind of a little bit of, of everything. And I have, um, a new 
chapter in my life after certainly his inspirational years that we were together and and now I have a little bit more time to dedicate to to I think the um, the people in in the community and at greater Vermont as well so kind of a different phase in my life and I've always I've always volunteered I've always helped in the local school system so much that some of the kids thought I worked there which was I think very flattering um, and to support the teachers and the good work that they do and and I've coached for a number of years and um, and done whatever I could just to help in our local community. And Kelly, I'm curious, did you put your name forward for the seat or were you asked to put your name forward? Well, a little bit of both, a little bit of both. I had been recently working with the town of Rockingham on a transportation committee and uh, as the secretary of the um, BFADC, the Bellows Falls Area Development uh, Corp. So I had, you know, I'd been working with those folks on different projects and and I, just talking about it and tossing the the idea around in a group and 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 so that that's how it came to be just with the you know local people as well as in and some of the committee work. Can I ask I, a question about that? Yes. So I was on a panel last night of um, racial and ethnic minorities that have run for office, and um, one of the things that came up is something that often comes up when I've attended women running for office events, which is this whole idea that a woman um, that gets floated around that a woman needs to be asked five times before she runs for office. Um, and that a man just sort of like wakes up in the morning and decides that they deserve an office seat. And I don't, um, and I say that because I don't think that's actually true. It's just sort of a trope that circulates through um, with some truth to it, but it's sort of circulates through the political arena. Uh -huh. and. I think it's really interesting because I didn't need to be asked five times. No one asked me to run for office. I just decided it's what I wanted to do. Um, and I think it's interesting that we, um, so I'm curious about what you said about, it's just sort of like, it's something that evolved or came up um, rather than needing an explicit ask. Uh, because I, I appreciate that, that like this is sort of, you know, often a naturally evolving thing where we sort of find permission for ourselves, but someone doesn't need to give us permission. So well, I wanted to be curious yeah. if you could flesh that a little bit more. I, I actually, when I heard uh, that he was stepping down, I, I actually asked somebody whose opinion that I, I, I value, I said, what do you think about me going for this? Because I think that I bring something different uh, um, to, the, to the government. And, and it, was, it was really, again, it was my idea. And I thought that, you know, I, I just, I guess I just was looking for validation that they thought I, I had, cause I, I want to do a good job and I don't want to um, misrepresent, you know, the, the people in the area. So I, I was looking, I, I did, it was not a, it was not a, a long conversation. Certainly it, it wasn't five people is what I'm trying to say is that it was just, I said, well, what do you think? I think I could offer something and they, they gave me the validation. And so I, so I put my hat in the ring. What's the different thing that you think you offer? Well, I, I think one that I've, again, worn many on the hat theme, worn many hats and I've done different um, aspects and I've, you know, you know, again, back to locally caring for the people in your community, literally and figuratively, that certainly, 
you see the needs of the, the folks and you think you might be able to have a, uh, an impact on their voice. That's kind of what, what drove me. So Kelly and Emily, I'd like to step back for a moment just for the sake of listeners and talk about how this seat came open. It was held by Matt Treber. And was it, I think it was January, Emily, that he announced his resignation. And that started the, the nomination time. process. Um, so can we just uh, give a quick outline to listeners who may not be feel familiar with how a seat is filled if the person leaves it partway through a term? So the, the first step is, of course, the resignation. And then the is it the county chairs of the the pros the the commit the sorry the party of the outgoing this is one of can i this is one of the things that's really fascinating to me about this particular seat from like the dynamic of the county committee's perspective so um the governor appoints from a list that is sent from the party right and for a countywide seat, the count the Wyndham County, if it was a Democrat seat, the Wyndham County Democratic Committee would um, appoint for a countywide seat. And for a townwide seat, so if um, someone from Brattleboro resigned, the Brattleboro Democratic Committee would send up names. And we're saying Democrat but, because Treber was a Democrat. Because Treber was a Democrat. If Republican, it would have been the Republican. Absolutely. And for an independent, it's like slightly more confusing. And I don't, we don't need to explain that because that's not what we're talking about. <laughs> Um, and so, but for the, this particular seat of which, you know, the, um, most of the seats in the county are like this, it's made up of multiple towns that have multiple committees. And so what's interesting to me about it is all of those town committees had never actually had a meeting together before. And so it was like a whole new dynamic when all those committees got put together to do that. Hey, Kelly, Um, you're already shaking things up. (laughs) (laughs) And so um, John Hagen, the county committee chair, certainly helped facilitate like that configuring and understanding of the rules and all of that. But it was the town committees that did the work. And I wasn't there. So Kelly, please take it from here about what actually happened there. Well, I actually, um, I consulted with Carolyn Partridge, who's a great resource. um, And she actually- She's the other rep for the seat? Oh, that's uh, it's a two-seat yes, district. Okay. That's correct. Uh, and so she was super helpful on the process and how it goes. And, and, and she just, from a procedure point, because she actually had gone through something similar uh, when she first um, got into the state legislature, that was part of, so she knew what to expect. And, and she just explained that you, the, the committee has to get together. So they have people from uh, the whole district. So that's Wyndham. Um, Athens, Grafton, Rockingham, and um, part of uh, North Westminster. So they all the the group got together, and um, and then nominated um, the folks that were interested in the uh, in the seat, and then we had a um, question and answer. So and that's and then they vote, and the way um, so there was there was two of us, Leslie Goldman and myself, and but Carolyn had explained in the past again because I'd never done the process before that you so say there were five um, people interested in the role. She explained that it would be 
the top three vote getters, um, it could, you know, however many number that is, would then get the name sent to the governor. Uh, and then, um, and then they would get interviewed. And then, and the way it was explained to me is that a, a governor could select one of the three, somebody completely different or nobody at all. Um, so that's, that's, that's how the process was explained to me. And that's, and so it ended up being just two of us. Um, and, and, and the group asked, you know, a lot of questions and, and uh, so it was, it was very helpful getting to talk to everybody. What was, so, what was the hardest question that you were asked during, during that question answer period? Um, I, I think one of the hardest ones was about uh, certainly higher education um, in our, in the, the cost of it in, in our state. Um, that was probably the one that is, you know, I think pretty meaningful across the board, no matter where you're at. And, and it was kind of tagged in with keeping um, young people in our state um, only because of the, the population declining and in the age of our population increasing and so that probably to me was was the hardest one mm -hmm. and what was the most fun like what was the the best part of this process well i i think it's i think that a lot of people are not really aware of our how close you are to our political system mm -hmm. and that you know that certainly struck a chord with me, even though, you know, people can have opinions and they can think they know uh, the process or think they know because um, they might've studied civics in school. And then what you realize you're like, well, we can touch our legislatures, you know, cause they live in our town or, you know, that to me, that was pretty eye-opening. And, you know, when you, when you actually start getting involved and I'm sure Emily probably feel something very similar that you, you're local, you hear their voices, you see their successes and their struggles, and then you can take that information to the state house. It always seems unattainable, but it really isn't. What do you hope, um, or let me phrase this a little differently. What do you think um, Montpelier, or the, the legislative body as a whole. Uh, what do you wish they knew about your community that perhaps they don't? I love that question. Mm, that's a great question. Uh, I think that, that our community certainly has had, you know, it's, it's been an industrial town for, you know, a couple hundred years. And it has its its ups and downs, and it does have it has a it means beautiful setting. We're right on the Connecticut River. We've got a lot of uh, public lands that people have access to. Um, I think that there's a lot of you know there's struggles on on um, you know people in affordable housing. I mean those are always topics that come up, and but we are. We, we have um, identified us, ourselves for years as a, an old mill town, because when I was a kid, we still had mills in town, but now we do not. And, and I think we have to, you know, we have to help ourselves to shed some of that old stuff and kind of get on with some new stuff, so hopefully new jobs, however big or small they are, just to keep everybody, everybody working.
Mm-hmm. So I, I mean, we're, I mean, we're, you know, we're not, we're, Brattleboro has higher numbers certainly than Bellows Falls and the surrounding area. And Bellows Falls is the, is the name everybody says is the town of Rockingham and it has three villages in the town of Rockingham. Um, so it is, it, I think some people are like, oh, Rockingham, is that anywhere near Bellows Falls? And, <laughs> as a matter of fact, it is. Yes, right next to each other. Right, right, right. <laughs> Emily, what would you like to ask Kelly? Oh, um, what's the, what are you most looking forward to about this process? I mean, I imagine it's very hard. It, like, this is just the, I can't get over what a strange time this would be to become a legislator. Um, and I know that you haven't known anything different and I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, what are you looking forward to the most about this process? Like, what is, yeah, that's my question. It's an easy well, one. I'm, I'm <laughs> really looking forward to actually, this is a great first step really to, to kind of engage with you guys and to also, it was, uh, I know that you had done the um, training uh, with Mitzi and how voting and okay. online and, and it was really nice just to meet everybody. So that's a piece that certainly is missing uh, in in-person meets. However, I did meet uh, Bill uh, McGill with the clerk with, uh, we both had our masks and we're six feet away as we did the swearing in, um, which was which was super interesting. Oh, we should use that picture as the picture for the- Oh the, yes, can you send it. us that picture? Yeah. yeah, I can I can try to get my get my IT person over here. My, <laughs> <laughs> my cousin could probably help me with that. Um, but yeah, so that was, that, that was uh, I look forward to actually, so every time I email somebody, I jot, you know, I try to keep track of who I've met and the actual book that they give you on who the representatives and senators are. I kind of jot down that we've connected through email in case I forget because it's not, you know, in person. But I really want to hear what everybody has to say because I think everybody brings something different to the table and that we we can only learn if we keep our minds open and listen to other people's thoughts and, and hopefully it's not going to be exactly what we think but maybe somewhere in the middle um you know give or take is gonna is gonna teach us something and that we can make the best decisions for vermonters mm -hmm. that's what i look forward to hearing what people have to say and embracing their experience and also you know just the the process and again everybody says it's a really weird time to enter into into the house right now and and i agree but as i talked to emily last night i said well i don't know any difference so i'm not mourning a, a loss of something that i never had so hopefully i i'm excited that if we ever get back in person that i can learn that part as well mm -hmm. and i'm curious you know you have a background as a nurse Mm -hmm. And then you've also worked in um, the business side of your community as well. Right. And I'm wondering, you know, as you're looking at how COVID is, is impacting our communities right now, I'm wondering what you are seeing as far as the cracks it's kind of showing or showing where our communities uh, need, are, were weak and need support. Um, because you know, going forward, the hope is that we can come out of this more resilient. Right. And so, yeah, what cracks are you seeing? And, and do you have any thoughts you could share on how to kind of shore up 
um, places in our community that need that help? Well, I think that we're in, in, for the most part, I think Vermont is still a super rural state. So we're fortunate to be able to get out, even though we're staying safe, but we can walk around the block or we can walk out in our backyard because a lot of people have access to that. The part that I guess still confuses me is, is the, um, the communication. When I say communication, I mean person to person, not necessarily because the Vermont Department of Health is really updating their website and I get updates um, daily and I look at that at least a couple times a day to see what's changed and and they've sent out a I don't know if you've had a chance to look at they have a cute little video about staying safe at home it's only about a minute long and it, it and it's very nice and uplifting and there are a lot of really good things going on with that but the people in the public that I see that aren't wearing masks that are not social distancing that to me is the biggest thing and I certainly remind everybody as I walk by them with a mask and say don't forget about social distancing and and some people it's just amazing to me how there's a there's people that you could have the extreme people who are you know they wear a, a mask in their car by themselves to which they don't really need to do but that that's they're taking it that seriously and then you have the other people that hug and greet each other on the street with no mask and no distancing. So that part to get us all able to level this out and on the downswing, we all have to practice the same thing. So I think it's just communicating with each other expectations. And it's kind of like coaching that, well, I've said cover your nose, they should know it by now, but they don't. So you always have to remind people to cover their face when they cough or sneeze, even before this happens. So we're just changing the words a little bit. Wash your hands, 20 seconds. Um, count it out, sing it out. You you just have to keep coaching each other so we can help really all each all, all of ourselves. That's what I see on a daily basis, the the constant coaching. I think the majority of the people are taking it seriously, but you have the the few that I if it doesn't affect them, I'm not sure. I, I really don't have an answer for why they're not taking it seriously, but I don't mind reminding them and coaching them up. <laughs> I I love that answer. Sign of the time. So it's my birthday this week, and I met friends for a you know social distance walk around the BUHS track, and they they were so sweet. They brought me birthday gifts, and one of them brought me a handmade mask. Awesome. So yeah, sign of the times. You're getting face masks for birthday presents. <laughs> I got mine in the mail yesterday from my select board member and Liz McLaughlin. Look at she that. Three of us for our family. That is snazzy. She, I mean, she has an incredible fabric collection and um, really love, I love all of ours. And this <laughs> one is, yeah, I'm pretty psyched on my yeah. mask. Yeah. Yeah. Three cheers for Elizabeth. That's a very nice looking mask. Thanks. I've had, we've, I've had my, um, my cousin and friend here um, and we, most nights make, I was telling Emily last night, we try to make 10 masks a night. I think we've made just, and it's, it's a little bit different style, but everybody, I always tell people, just make sure you can wash it uh, in the washing machine and, and dry it. And uh, we've made over, I, I mean, we're not quite a hundred masks, but we're closing in on it. So we have a we have a little system. Everybody does it. I'm the sewer and they do, they do all the folding and the measuring and the ironing. So. Given, keep giving those out. 
I know Carolyn Partridge is also spending an enormous amount of time sewing masks. So I love that both of you, like, you know, sharing that seat or deep in mask sewing. Whenever we have a call together, she's always sewing masks the whole time. I'm like, oh, Carolyn, you, you hit your machine's a little loud. <laughs> I, I did that with my mother. My mother's a master sewer and she and I were sewing together uh, last week. It was kind of, it was actually very fun. <laughs> Our social distancing sewing bee there. Nice. I think, um, the issue around people who aren't able to social distance right now or are choosing not to social distance, I think is a really interesting one. And um, when I think about the folks I know who are still um, in some ways living their lives the way they always have, they're mostly folks who um, have made so, have had to make so many other adjustments in their lives. Um, because of economic stress or um, chronic trauma, or um, they've had so little ability to make decisions in their lives because of sort of what um, economic and social circumstances they found themselves in, mm -hmm. that they just seem to not be able to make one more adjustment. Mm -hmm. It's just like, it's just not even available. That like extra information is not available to them. And it's really, it's really interesting to me in that we're asking sort of, um, we're asking our whole community, our whole state, our whole nation to make basically the same adjustment. But we, I mean, my social distancing experience is like fairly glorious in my um, spacious house with all the birds all around me. And other people's social distance experience might be in a, you know, tiny, tiny uncomfortable apartment or a tiny uncomfortable room um, and I have a lot of resiliency around like making new decisions and being flexible and some folks really don't. Right. And so it's interesting to me that we sort of have this level set expectation of everyone, but the individual experience of living that is very, very different for each person. And it's one of the, it's one of the things that I find sort of fascinating about this time is that we have the same expectation of everyone, but people's ability to carry that out and people's experience of that is so, so different. And that's just something I've been sort of sitting with, um, what the lessons are into the future as we, um, as we observe that. I, I think what you say, Emily, is so crucial because we're seeing that big now um, as, as we all have the same expectation, but because this pandemic will not have impacted people equally, or equitably or yeah. in the same way, it will also really, I feel, impact the recovery process because we won't be able to have a one size fits all recovery process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Kelly, we're just, I know you can only uh, be with us for about half an hour this morning, so we're just about out of time. Uh, but I wanna, I wanna make sure, is there anything you want the community to know about you? Um, if they have questions for you, do you have a way for them to contact you at this point? I know everything's still very new, um, <laughs> but yeah, I'd love to let, give you a minute or two to share anything with the community you'd like them to know. Well, sure, I, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty accessible. I mean, it, again, if the, the people locally here in town certainly know how to find me and I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm not hard to find. Um, I do have um, a, I, I had aspirations, I did not finish it last night to finish a, a Facebook page um, because I think, I think also there's a lot of um, 
good information that I'd love to post for people to be able to, to see in our area about um, what the services and what, what things are happening. And I know there's a lot of frustration around um, unemployment access. And I think that's a big, really a big deal for everybody. So I do hope, to, hopefully, by the end of today to have that finished and get it up so I can start reaching out and then people can message me, certainly email and all that. Um, do you have a legislative email address yet? I do. It's ktully at ledge.state. Yes. That'll roll off your tongue soon, I promise. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. That that works at email. I, I guess it felt real when I, I had the email set up. So. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And Kelly, just so you know, Olga always asks that question at the end of every interview. Is there oh, anything great. else you would like to tell anyone, tell me? And so um, I'm never prepared for it. So I'm warning you. <laughs> Thank you. And is yeah. there anything you folks think I should think about or get to as I go forward? I really hope that um, you're able to communicate your experiences as a nurse and as someone who's been involved in business. Um, I think in our, and, and I hope it can inform policy, because I think in our community, we, we put a lot of things in buckets, and we tend to separate business over here and nonprofits over here and, and that type of thing. And I think you have a great opportunity because you've been in all these different camps and worn these mm -hmm. different hats to perhaps integrate um, some of these, these silos or these buckets. So um, I, I hope that you can find a way to do that because I think it would be very valuable. Thank you. That's good advice. You're welcome. Thank you. Emily? Um, take your time. Yeah. <laughs> like this is, it's in a kind of an incredible gift to be entering right now with all of this, um, at least physical space around us. Right. And so, um, yeah, take your time. There's so much to learn and there's so many people to meet and there are so many questions to answer, but you'll never get to all of it. There's always going to be more work to do. And so like, start off by giving yourself a little spaciousness around that. <laughs> Thank you. I You're appreciate welcome. that. Yeah. Thank you. Well, Kelly Tully, the new representative for the Wyndham 3 District to the House of Representatives, Thank you for serving and welcome to this game that we call uh, Montpelier and policymaking and government. Thank you very much. So that is all the time we have for Kelly. Um, if you if you have more time and you wanted to stay, you are more than welcome. Uh, but we are going to take a quick break and the Montpelier happy hour will return in a moment. Well, great. Thank you, ladies, very much. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, um, my gosh. And we'll see you really soon, virtually somehow. Yes, literally. I think we have to uh, virtually, not literally anymore. Yes. That we will have to get on our, our giant Zoom. Absolutely. So I'll see you at one. And I'm going to keep you out of this meeting now and say goodbye. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you. It was bye -bye. great meeting great you, Kelly. Thank you. You as well. Bye-bye. here on WVEW 107.7 FM LP 
your Brattleboro Community Radio Station. I'm your host, Olga Peters. If you're just joining us, we had just uh, on on the show Kelly Tully. She's the new representative for Wyndham 3. And now we are back. Emily Kornheiser and I. Hey, Emily. Hey, Olga. I don't know if our listeners have noticed that we used to have matching little pink earbuds and now we have matching big black headphones. And in both cases, it was just a coincidence. I know. We're very good at And have you ever mm-hmm. noticed how often our out- outfits match, too? And we're not texting each other before we get dressed like middle mm-hmm. school girls. We are just <laughs> doing this naturally. <laughs> so it's just, it's good. It's good. Uh, is that syncopation? Yes. Synchronicity? There we go. All those things. All those things. All those things. All those shining balls of light. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, Emily, I want to kind of keep in the vein of representation since Mm. we just spoke with uh kelly from wyndham three and talk about a new task force that the governor has launched and it's basically a covid recovery task force Mm -hmm. and it has different groups for those who don't know some people are looking at small businesses some people are looking at community action um but they're all about kind of the recovery process from covid and there's 19 people on this task force, if I have the number correctly. And some some folks south of Route 4, which is all of Bennington County, Wyndham County, and a good portion of Rutland and Windsor County, um, have taken issue with this task force. Because of the all the members, there's one person from south of Route 4 uh, to represent the southern part of the state. And for me, I want to talk to you about this, Emily, because I'm curious, you know, I have grown up with that, that trope of, well, as far as Montpelier is concerned, anything south of Route 4 is Massachusetts, and they don't need to worry about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, the whole thing like, oh, well, I actually live in Vermont, Massachusetts, or the Forgotten Kingdom or something like that. Um, And people are feeling that having only one person on this task force is a, is symbolic of of that from you as someone who has is serving in montpelier and you're from south of route four is this a real thing are there needs of the southern vermont that are not being met in general and and is do we need to be concerned about the representation on this task force mm. so that's a lot of different questions, Olga. I so know, I hope you can hold the question for me a little bit while I while I answer parts of it, and then because I want to get to all of them because it's a um, big mushy uh, situation. <laughs> so I think even how we describe Southern Vermont, I think, is really really different from different people's perspectives. So I've often seen meetings in Randolph as described as like Southern Vermont meetings, right? Yeah, and that is north of Route Four, yes. Yeah, and yeah. Like I think Randolph isn't it technically the geographic center? Yes, it is. It is oh, technically the geographic center and hard for everyone to get to. Um, <laughs> and so, which is symbolic. And then, itself. you know, there's some people who think like parts of Rutland County don't count as Southern Vermont. And there's some people who think all of Rutland County is Southern Vermont. And there's, you know, like Northern Windsor. How does it all, you know? So everyone is already arguing about like what Southern Vermont is. Um, and I'm sure like Guilford and Virgin and um, Vernon and Powell feel like particularly forgotten, right? Because um, we even forget about them in like, you know, very Southern Brattleboro sometimes. No, we don't. We never forget about Guilford and Vernon. Sometimes we forget about Powell. The, um, 
so there's that, which is already, and it's sort of similar to, you know, growing up New York, like to Manhattan, Northern New York is like anything North of the Bronx. Whereas to people who actually like live in Northern New York, that's like the Canadian border. And mm -hmm. so we have that geographic relativity issue the same way we have a, same way we have a relativity issue for anything, right? Mm -hmm. um, when I think about sort of issues affecting Southern Vermont that might be forgotten, um, there are some, but there's also issues that affect the Connecticut River corridor, right? Um, that often get lost when we talk about the Lake Champlain Basin. There are issues that affect people who live in border towns um, that are totally forgotten when we think about people who live closer to the middle of the state. Mm -hmm. There are people, you know, who experience, you know, people in rural areas that um, get forgotten in the context of urban needs. Um, Brattleboro often sort of falls like deeply in the middle between all of those issues. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's people who don't really have highways versus people who do. So like all of Bennington County is just impossible to get to, right? And big parts of the kingdom are sort of impossible to get to because of this just like lack of road problem. And so, yes, yes, like representation matters. I mean, that's why we like, you know, the House and the Senate are configured differently. Like that's sort of the assumption of all of this is that representation matters. Um, but I'm not entirely sure that Southern Vermont is sort of a behemoth that has similar needs. Um, Certainly the particular place that the tourism and second home economy has on our communities is very significant. Mm -hmm. um, but the community with the largest percentage of second homes in the state, I think, is in the kingdom. Um, and so there's that piece. Um, there's that we don't really have a large corporation housed here. Mm -hmm. um, but that's again, like that's really just more of a Chittenden and everyone else kind of phenomenon, not a Southern Vermont versus other places phenomenon. Um, certainly Bennington and Wyndham County politics are significantly different, even though they both have democratic majorities. Mm -hmm. um, issues tend to play out differently. Um, so I think the influence of Massachusetts is really significant compared to the influence of New Hampshire hmm. mm -hmm. um, in terms of what it means for a labor shed. Right. And so that I think when we think about sort of repair task forces becomes really important. Um, the influence of our infrastructure with regards to airports um, and sort of the different access to airports that we have down here versus up north um, is really significant. But what I do see um, around representation that I probably struggle with the most is that many of our um, government services are delivered through these contracted entities. And we've talked about that mm -hmm. a lot here. It's one of my favorite topics and I hope it's become one of your favorite topics. <laughs> um, and so, and those are all done by contract. And so each, institution or organization does their work very differently. And so mm -hmm. we see that with the community action agencies. Each region has its own community action agency. We see that with parent-child centers. Each parent-child center has its own. Um, we see that with the designated agencies. We have HCRS here, 
they have something else up north, um, Howard Center. We and we see that with our um, development credit corporations too. We have BDCC, other areas of other things. So what the way I see representation being the most challenged around things like that is that in the Montpelier bubble, um, when people are asked to testify on behalf of those organizations, it's almost always a representative from one of those agencies that happens to be in the Montpelier Burlington nexus. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so the community action agency that represents Mont that covers Montpelier tends to speak for all the community action agencies. The housing services organization from that area tends to speak for all the housing services agencies when the needs might be quite different um, because they're very different organizations with just different staffing structures and different grant configurations and different um, human needs. Mm -hmm. But and so in that case, for me, representation really matters because I don't see them telling the story of all of the agencies. I see them telling their story. And then there's an assumption that that story is universal to all of those agencies. Um, mm -hmm. On this task force, specifically, um, I don't see that any of the people who are on the task force are being asked to speak for either a geography or even an industry. Um, I didn't see representation in sort of in any of those ways. I was sort of curious how it was um, put together because it didn't seem like there was even sort of like, you know, there were certainly no workers on it, mm -hmm. but there weren't really on the economic one, but there certainly wasn't even like a particular mix of like small business and corporation or um, locally owned and nationally owned or whatever, you know. Um, so those types of representation, I think, matter just as much or just as little as um, geography. Mm -hmm. That wasn't a very clear answer I gave you. Well, I, what it what your answer kind of clues up for me is two things. The first is just to talk about that that notion of of is south of Route Four being forgotten about? It, no, it's not. <laughs> but it sounds to me like people feel they are, mm -hmm. in which it makes me wonder if we need to change conversations. You know, maybe there are needs that need to be met that just aren't being communicated, mm -hmm. um, or ways that communication is coming down from Montpelier that needs to be improved so that people's perception of the issue might shift a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, but what it also reminds me is something when we were talking to Kelly about is, you know, because this COVID has not impacted everyone in the same way, mm -hmm. because everyone's situation going into the pandemic wasn't the same, the recovery is going to need to be very nuanced mm. and and I think slow and long-term. And by long-term, I mean, as someone who covers municipalities, when recovery from Irene happened, mm -hmm. um, there were some projects, infrastructure projects, that five years out, I was still writing about. We still haven't finished recovery, our responsibility with recovery towards Tripark. Yeah. They are still dealing in a very significant way with the impacts of Irene. Exactly. 
And, and so if we use Irene as, as kind of our touchstone mm-hmm. and we're how many years it happened in 2011. So we're how many years out? Mm-hmm. Um, we it have to expect, um, oh yeah. Don't you remember? That was the year from hell in Brattleboro. We had the Brooks fire. We had the um, energy lawsuit. Mm-hmm. We had a number of killings, murders, mm-hmm. and then we had our shootings, I should say. And, um, we had Irene. Did I say the Brooks House fire? Mm-hmm, you did. Yeah, I couldn't remember. I lost count. Um, so yeah, 2011 kind of stands out in my mind. Um, but we have to expect that the recovery from COVID is even going to be more nuanced yeah. and more necessary. And so, you know, I look at this task force and my first question is, and it's brand new and it's only a task force and things may evolve. Mm-hmm. But is it nuanced enough? And does is the representation nuanced enough to start pulling at all these different threads that need to be pulled at? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I don't know if I like even believe in task forces, even though I've sort of spent most of my career creating things like task forces and facilitating task force type meetings. Well, um, then that's an interesting insight. <laughs> and so what... What happens, though, on a task force is that people have conversations there that form connections and start conversations that then each of those people bring back to whatever sphere of influence they have. Because the task force doesn't necessarily, rarely, sometimes, has a for, has some force of influence. But generally, it's the people who are in it and what they bring back to their own spheres of influence, right? Um, Which I think we should say um, is probably how this task force is going to operate, because I remember reading in the press release that the governor very explicitly said this is not an advisory body. And like, what are they doing? Um, They are making everyone feel like we're doing something, which is fine. Like, that's also a good that's a good quality in a task force is to help people feel like we're doing something. Um, There are some people that are on the task force that I really respect and who, um, Paul Costello for one, Mm -hmm. I think understands the needs of the state holistically because they've spent deep, he's spent deep time with the Council on Rural Development in each of our communities. Yes. And so where I think representation matters is that when we have someone who might like, sure, they might live wherever they live in the state, but they need to actually understand the varied geography and the varied needs. So often the needs of Brattleboro line up best with the needs of Burlington because we have sort of the two most scarce housing problems and the two most racially diverse communities in the state, right? Mm -hmm. And so sometimes I feel like Burlington could probably speak for us on those particular issues, right? Um, But we need to be able to sort of like break things out that way to understand. We have a very powerful county delegation and a very capable county delegation down here in Wyndham County. And so in the legislature, I don't really worry about our needs getting forgotten um, at all. What, but there are sort of the individual nuances um, that should move a larger conversation. Um, and so, you know, the tourism economy is one of them, certainly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't know if we, so that premise I set up that one person who lives in one place could have sort of keep in mind the needs of all the rest of the state. Um, 
I don't know if I entirely believe that, right? Mm -hmm. And so I can read a lot about the experience of someone, um, but until I engage in real personal relationships with that person, um, with someone sort of with that experience, I don't know if I truly understand that experience well enough to problem solve around it or um, elevate it. And I think that's similar to when we see representation in the legislature of just people who are upper middle class, mm -hmm. right? Um, because their personal relationships really drive, their personal relationships is really what drives our stories of how mm -hmm. the world is put together. And people tend to socialize with people who are similar to them, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, one thing that surprised me about this task force, going back to what you had said about, you know, Paul Costello and how he has worked in so many different communities mm -hmm. um, and how that has informed his knowledge of Vermont. I was surprised, unless I misread it, I was surprised that there weren't more, there wasn't more representation from the regional planning commissions mm -hmm. because part of what their job is is to have a very broad understanding of their their areas. And mm -hmm. so maybe, you know, Chris Campany, who's the executive director of the Wyndham Regional Commission, may not fully understand like what impacts the uh, Lake Champlain Basin. Mm -hmm. But if you get, you know, someone who deeply understands all a lot of different aspects of how Wyndham County works, because mm -hmm. they look at the economy, they look at the natural resources, they look at energy planning, and you get someone else who deeply understands how Chittenden County works, mm -hmm. and you have them speaking, um, you can you can bring deep knowledge to the table. Um, so I was, was surprised there weren't more the, regional planning folks. Was there anyone from the RDCs either? I thought I saw one person from the RDC, but that also surprised no, me. There was not many... Uh, and for folks who don't know, those are the regional economic development uh, organizations such as the Brattleboro Development Credit Corporation. Yeah, I don't know that I saw many of, of them either. I mean, maybe that might be the strength of these of this task force is that it is the people you wouldn't normally think of. <laughs> maybe i mean yeah well we'll see i have a lot of faith in maura collins yes i think is one she of on the, there she is Good. she's on the local support and community action team there are those memes floating around and i don't know if you've seen them but it's like which covid house do you want to be stuck in basically and it's like various lists like there's like one of like different rock stars and there's like one of different legislators that someone did on twitter and like there's a bunch of them and um i can't help like look at these three teams like that and, and think which COVID house like, you'd want to get stuck in. Yes. <laughs> which one would you want to get stuck in since you have the list in front of you? It's the local support and community action team. Yeah, the one that's probably the one in. I'd want to get stuck yeah. into. <laughs> what? The internet's very good these days. It is. Change mm -hmm. the Story had a few memes, some that were very gut-wrenching because of how they were highlighting some of our, our wage gaps in this state. Oh, yes. But one of them just, and it was so simple, but it just shows how badly we all need to laugh is social distancing Vermont style. You have to make sure you have at least one cow length between mm. two people. You know, it was just what That's I needed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. The um, person who does all the communications for Change the Story is one of the leaders in the central Vermont um, 
Central Vermont or Burlington um, recovery mutual aid stuff. Um, so they are very busy right now and incredibly capable. I bet they are. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So that, that's actually a good um, thread on this sort of representation matters thing. So we know that the people who are being um, very impacted by this sort of essential person conversation, right? Mm -hmm. um, tends to be single low income moms, right? Like that's yeah. what that's saying. It's the same, it's the same trope about, I don't know if I should call it a trope, but you know, it's the same tendency that is the folks most impacted by minimum wage and the folks most impacted by any downturns in the economy and the folks most impacted by everything. Um, and in, you know, other states, those would be women of color. Um, mm -hmm. And so we would see those folks who would be most likely to also be dying of COVID. Mm -hmm. um, and so where is that, where is that voice in the recovery? You know, the people who put their bodies on the front lines of this work to sustain us all, you know, being in our houses, where are those people's voices as leading the recovery? That's my question. That's much more important to me than whether or not Southern Vermont has a talking head. Mm -hmm. Well, and it brings back to, to me, how are we collecting those stories so that they can be heard by the people who need to hear them and and how are we connecting with those those people because it mm -hmm. brings us back to some of the conversations we had before covid about how do we engage the community so as many voices are at the table as possible mm -hmm. um and and again we have very good deliberative processes mm -hmm. um but i mean sorry we have very good decisive processes decision making processes but not um deliberative not collecting processes let's say yes um and i know that um the vermont historical society is doing sort of a story core kind of project mm -hmm. around this time um but i am perhaps unfairly sure that only a certain segment of society would engage in that Mm -hmm. um, and again, the people who are on the front lines of this crisis are not the ones that have time to be documenting their challenges, right? Right. Um, and in some ways, there's been some really amazing union conversation standing up to represent those who are at the front lines, right? Like we see that in the nurses union doing a great job. Um, most of the co-ops in the state are unionized. Mm -hmm. And so while grocery store chains aren't, those co-ops are. And they are in some cases speaking on behalf of sort of all grocery store workers. But mm -hmm. again, I'm just like really, yeah, left again. And who is, who is able to tell the story of folks who don't have the time and resources to tell it themselves. And mm -hmm. um, well, I guess it's, you know, it's kind of you, Olga. I mean, isn't that what journalists do? We're part of it, yeah. Yeah, especially if like journalism is like appropriately funded and staffed. <laughs> Funded and staffed. Yes, that's the uh, that's the appropriate. Yeah, if you ever if you want to learn more about how journalism is funded and staffed, you can check some of the Pew Charitable Trust's research to see like what journalists earn compared to say PR marketing mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. I yeah. think we were around 
in good markets were around 60 cents to one dollar but i think some are more like 32 cents to a dollar mm-hmm. so that and that so tells you where our community puts their priorities absolutely and it's another place like you know where low-income folks are the ones at the front lines of this crisis right like you're mm-hmm. one of those folks yeah yeah um Oh, so here's just a a mind game, because you know how I have these questions. You know, we we talk about workers' rights in Vermont, and Vermont is an at-will state. But it did make me wonder, given how much recovery we are going to have to do from COVID, what would it be like, and because Vermont's fairly small, if there was a workers union that covers all Vermonters. Yeah. And that the requirement to be in the the union is you either hold a job in Vermont or you are a Vermont resident. Like, I don't know. It's so interesting. (laughs) Like, I don't even know how that works. Like I, you know, I wondered in the, um, the way that sort of organizing units works um, seems to be about like workplaces. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, legally and logistically, I'm really curious about what that would look like. So, you know, like I wondered what it would look like for you to enjoy, for you to join Digger's new union, right? Like, right. is that possible? Like, because we need something because it is absurd for small business, for employees of small businesses to organize mm-hmm. as just their own standalone business. It doesn't work. So even, um, you know, the designated agency or a lot of nonprofits are organized and they're technically under the union, the banner of the same union, but they don't organize together. Mm-hmm. And so what that means is they're sort of like fighting their employers around the scraps that the employers are getting from state government. Right. And what we really need is for workers to be banding together in a much more significant way. And we see the unions trying to do that. I mean, that's technically what the AFL-CIO is supposed to be doing is like, you know, uniting all of the unions under one banner. But so many people are left out of that because of the particular nature of employment in Vermont. Mm -hmm. And I do think that this is a really, as we are at least having, um, as middle-class people are at least having more and more conversations about valuing workers and worker time and worker safety, that this should be a moment of public sentiment that we could used to drive workers' rights in a much more significant way. And, you know, here's the thing about a union that covered everybody is its potential weakness is that you have someone from very different industries Mm -hmm. under the same umbrella. Mm -hmm. You know, the needs of a tipped worker at a restaurant are different than, say, the needs of someone who's working in an industrial position. But we even see that playing itself out in the Vermont State Employees Association all the time, right? Like the needs of a corrections worker and the needs of a social worker are completely different. And there's huge schisms within that union that are like constantly playing themselves out. And corrections mostly is winning. Um, And I often see that union um, really having, being at odds with the needs of poor Vermonters, Mm -hmm. right? And so that's another like... um, well, what I was about to say, too, is yeah. that that weakness could also be a strength Ooh. because it would really force, I think, Vermont to have conversations that perhaps it hasn't had before. Mm-hmm. Can I um, ask you a funny question? Yes, you can. So if all the workers came together to form a union, 
wouldn't that, isn't that sort of like how all the states are coming together to form a union? But like, isn't that what like the federal government's supposed to be is a union of all the states. So if <laughs> all of the workers, like all Vermont workers came together to form a union, isn't that what our state government's supposed to be? Um, I have played with the same question, <laughs> which it would tell you something how state government perhaps is not, not, not at least as far as workers' rights are concerned. Mm-hmm. And, and who knows, you know, state government, workers' rights may not be its responsibility. If Let's just say there was this union mm-hmm. and it was focused on protecting workers and making sure that all is well there. It could free up the state to focus more on things like education, infrastructure, healthcare. Um, you know, it, it could it could allow the state to have breathing room elsewhere. Ooh. Okay. Let's do it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I can hear the screaming already. <laughs> Those are screams of joy and excitement. Yes. For the new future. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I think since COVID is hitting us in a big way mm-hmm. and we need to make sure that we are taking time to mourn what we are losing. Mm-hmm. I, I think this is also a time to think big. Yeah. Amongst that mourning, amongst the chaos, there's still a chance to dream big. I have been there with you. And then I wonder if we sort of like think about the destruction and the creation impulse and archetypes. Um, if my need to always see creation in the ashes of destruction is just me being entirely avoidant about actually sitting in the destruction. Good question. Um, I think it depends on 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 people. I think that's an individual question you have to ask yourself. I know me as someone who tends to be very optimistic, I have been told that I don't know how the world works. <laughs> and if I did, I wouldn't be an optimist. Um, I'm actually defiantly an optimist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I, you know, again, I come back to that's why we need so much representation. Mm-hmm. Because some people do want to sit in the ashes of destruction, and that's how their their systems are wired. Mm-hmm. Where some people are more wired to just always look at the horizon, mm-hmm. and and that's the way that's how they're tuned. Mm-hmm. And so, in a perfect world, we would have all those all people. those voices at the table, yeah. as well as the sustainers, right? Yeah, um, I'm realizing that. The last few episodes, instead of ending up talking about cocktails at the end, we've been getting like a little spiritual. Um, <laughs> not sure what about. So um, I'm going to do a quick pivot to cocktails. Okay, we... please do. Is that okay? Yeah. You sure? Okay. Um, I think drinking is a really interesting thing right now. Because mm-hmm. um, I think popular imagination is taking it in a lot of different directions. Um, well, it has the capacity to go into many different directions. Too. Yes. Yes. And so I know someone when they isolated, they actually got all the alcohol out of their house mm-hmm. um, and really sort of understood what, what their path might look like. Um, I know for me, with all of the days seeming the same, finding a transition between, you know, 
late afternoon and evening, I need a lot of ritual attached to that. So I'm still changing my clothing at around that time, even though like, that's smart. It's not necessary. No, it's smart. It's smart. Transitions Um, are important when you're staying in the same space. Yes. And so I've also like really done, um, you know, cocktail hour and like even a snack to go with cocktail hour has become very important. Like, um, different kinds of socializing at that time, different kinds of space. And so for me, it's like a real way of sort of, it's alcohol has always been very ritual based for me, but it's a real way of sort of like marking the time between the work day and the transition to evening. Um, And so I've been really enjoying mixing like very fancy cocktails at my house um, as a way of just like continuing to spread out moments, small moments of pleasure, um, which I think is really important right now, as well as sort of marking time in a divisive way or decisive way. That's really interesting. Um, I have not been drinking that much and I have not been mixing cocktails because I found for me one of the pleasures I get from cocktails. And I think one reason we made this part of the happy hour mm-hmm. was um, I really enjoy uh, going out with friends mm-hmm. and talking to the bartender mm-hmm. and that experience of someone who has an expertise in something I don't mm-hmm. and what they can create. And then I get to try that. Mm-hmm. And then my friends were always tra- so not COVID appropriate. We're always like, oh, here, have a sip of this. Have a sip of that. Have a yeah. sip of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and that for me is part of the the fun of cocktails. So drinking by myself in my apartment, I'm like, eh. yeah, <laughs> it's not. And as I fun. feel as I drink, I mean, it's not entirely by myself because I have my family around, but also a lot of the time I do it sort of on an evening call, which sometimes it's a caucus meeting and sometimes it's social hour with friends. Um, I have a regular Zoom with the legislators that I tended to socialize with, but not necessarily vote with. Um, And so it's a way of sort of like connecting in this moment to all of that other time back then out there Uh um, and have sort of like a, a visceral experience that thread that goes between the two things. Um, Interesting. So So you know what has happened? I have found, uh, folks may may not know this, but a few weeks ago, Emily was like, oh, you always show up with a different mug. (laughs) And and I do. I have a bunch of different mugs. They all have a memory attached to them. This is my birthday mug from my mother. Oh, that's sweet. Yesterday was Olga's birthday, everyone. Happy birthday. Um, and, And I find that I choose my mug. Kind of like, okay, so what's my intention for the day? Ooh. And what do I want to get out of today? Um, what at the end of the day will make me feel successful of? I've completed it. And then I tend to choose a mug to match that. So that's that's been, that's been become one of my little morning rituals. Oh, I love it. Mm-hmm. Nice. The things we do to stay sane. Mm-hmm. Are we very over time? We're probably very over time. Okay. And you have to go, but that's okay because I will edit for WVEW. I will edit the a thing that fits within the hour. And then on YouTube or um, SoundCloud, they can hear the whole extended. And they can just like enjoy us. Mm-hmm. Philosophizing. <laughs> or turn us yoga, off. <laughs> which is whatever they want. Yes. Very, very good point. Um, it was really nice to see you. Same here. 
I look forward to talking to you again soon. Same here. And have a wonderful day being a lawmaker and all your other hats that you carry out into the world. I'm going to the house floor today for the <gasps> first time since this all happened. We've like had the real house floor? The virtual house floor. It's the first full convening of the full house um, since we voted in real life. It's the first virtual convening of the whole house floor. We've had small trainings on how to be in the full house floor, but we're about to try to do it for real for the first time. So I'm looking forward to that. We need to talk about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think Emily... it's going to involve a lot of people not knowing how to use their mute button, <laughs> but I'll report back. Well, you know, the reporters will be listening into that. <laughs> it's going to be great. Okay. I'll see you soon. Thank you for a great conversation. Same here, Emily. Have a great day. Bye. Bye.